Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. If it's true that the medium is the message, then it should also be true that the history of how media and news has been delivered over the past 20 years should tell us how it shaped our politics, our culture, and how we came to this place at this time. Back in the early 2000s, after the first dot-com crash, social media, and as it came to be known as digital media, would become the driver of the rebirth of the internet. The power and reach of social media and the billions of dollars in VC-fueled media investments would create a new digital media landscape. Brands like Gawker, BuzzFeed, Jezebel, The Huffington Post, and Vice would come to dominate our media diets. And around the same time, legacy media was on life support. A Mexican billionaire would be needed to bail out the New York Times. Jeff Bezos would buy the Washington Post at a bargain price. And Rupert Murdoch would buy the Wall Street Journal. Oh, how things have changed. Today, BuzzFeed has just abandoned the news business. Vice is on the brink of bankruptcy. Gawker has been erased. And social media is in its nadir. Only conservative media seems to have learned all the right and wrong lessons of that period. All of this as we sit on a new wave coming in. Media in all its forms is now pull rather than push. Instead of the news just being pushed out to us, we get to pick and choose. Today's Substacks and subscription news is invited into our inbox. Just as the pull and personal intimacy of podcasts have replaced radio and streaming has replaced broadcast TV. Like the Disney song says, it's a whole new world. And how we got here is the story that my guest Ben Smith tells in his riveting new book, Traffic. Ben Smith is the editor-in-chief of Semaphore, a new global news company. He is the former media columnist for the New York Times and the founding editor of BuzzFeed News. It is my pleasure to welcome Ben Smith here to talk about traffic, genius, rivalry, and delusion in the billion-dollar race to go viral. Ben Smith, thanks so much for joining me here on the Who, What, Why podcast. Thank you so much for having me on and for the kind words. It's a delight to have you here. Go back to the early 2000s and talk a little bit about what the media landscape, particularly in New York, was looking like then. It really seemed in many ways it was the center of the media universe. Yeah, you know, in the, well, in the, I mean, in the, you know, early 2000s, one thing you have to remember is that the you know the New York Times, Condé Nast, um, the big broadcast networks and cable networks really still seemed like these unchallengeable colossuses. And the um and and, and at that time in New York, there was this little scene of people starting to play around on 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 the internet on this new this new this new set of platforms, and you know to build and and to and to and to start to think about what a future of digital media would look like at a time when the internet seemed like this little small space where you could play around while the grown-ups were doing real things in print and on television. And when, if you went to, you know, the website of a Condé Nast magazine, like the New Yorker, you would literally just get a page that said, please subscribe to our print magazine. And that was it. And, um, and even, you know, even though lots of people were actually on the internet looking for news. And so these entrepreneurs and sort of, visionaries and maniacs, people like uh, Jonah Peretti, who founded who founded um, BuzzFeed and Nick Denton, who founded Gawker, you know, started to kind of develop theories of how could you take this new digital distribution and to some degree challenge or replace these huge sort of these huge, apparently kind of formidable brands. 
And talk about how social media was an important and really vital link in those conversations and, and how the vision was, was carried forward. Yeah, I mean, there were, people had different theories of, 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 of what the Internet could do. Nick Denton, who created Gawker, really thought the core thing it can do is sort of, you know, take away the kind of hypocrisy of old media. It can, um, and, you know, one of the sort of like most kind of delightful versions of that, they put out the, this, their site, Jezebel, put a bounty, a $10,000 bounty on an unretouched photo from a women's magazine and got a, and somebody, you know, purloined a photo from Red Book of a, of a country singer who still had, you know, freckles and smile lines before they photoshopped them out. And, you know, they published that and there was this idea, well, digital media will give you the real truth, not the photoshopped, you know, official version. Um, but Jonah Peretti, who created BuzzFeed, had this other idea, which was that this new growing social media is going to mean that basically that the way most people consume most news and entertainment is by getting it from a friend on a social network, by somebody sharing it with them. And, and, that, and if that's the case, the thing that media companies have to spend all their time thinking about is what's the sort of thing people want to share and how do we how do we make that? And if you remember sort of BuzzFeed lists and quizzes in the early days, and also, you know, when I got to BuzzFeed in 2012, a lot of the way we thought about news was you have all these people on Twitter, on Facebook. What are the questions they're asking? How do we answer them? And we had a, another theory that I think turned out to be just unbelievably wrong about how social media would, would work, which was that people in this public space sharing content with each other are going to kind of be their best selves. Like you don't want to look like some kind of, you know, weirdo yelling about politics. You want to be somebody who is sharing cute pictures of cats or informative articles or, you know, a link to a fundraiser for earthquake victims. And that we thought that this would be a basically positive space, social Twitter and Facebook, which did not, in fact, turn out to be the case. And one of the things that was particularly interesting was the mix of content, that it could be those cute pictures of cats next to a Pulitzer Prize article. And it was really reflective in, in theory of the way people viewed social media. Yeah. I mean, I think that I actually think there was sort of a social and political change. It wasn't just kind of a technical media story. But I think, in you know, when the Facebook newsfeed was new to being broadly used and was sort of perfected in 2011, 2012, 2013, I do think a lot of people thought, wow, this is cool. I'm seeing the articles my friends are reading. I'm seeing the, their baby pictures and wedding pictures. And I'm seeing some like, funny, funny jokes, and it's all mixed up together. But it sort of reflects that, like, I'm a person who likes news and also cares about my friend's kids, and it's reflective of my life. And and, and people kind of liked that mix, and BuzzFeed in particular thought, okay, we'll build a media, a, a media property that kind of reflects that Facebook newsfeed. I think as politics turned incredibly polarizing and divisive and in come 2015, suddenly you know, uh, you open this app and everybody you know is yelling at each other about Donald Trump. That's a much less pleasant experience for everyone. And and I think the notion that you could, that this blend of new, and, and news also feels darker and more serious and less, less like something you want to see in the context of other parts of your life. And I think, you know, both the platform started to try to f figure out how to deal with that and users just didn't really like it. You talk about the rivalry that existed or the difference in approach between Gawker and Nick Denton and BuzzFeed and, and Jonah Peretti and you. Talk a little bit about what that difference was all about. It was really this sort of initially quite 
positive, but also a little bit, um, you know, values-free idea that we had at BuzzFeed that we're just going to be, we're going to try to create whatever people want to share. And, you know, not without limit, but that we're not, we're not trying to impose our taste or our philosophy on this. We're, we're trying to figure out sort of almost psychologically, what is the thing that people will share? And I think at Gawker, it was much more, we kind of know that people pretend to be, you know, have pretend that they want to read Pulitzer Prize winning articles and really what they want is pornography. So we're just <laughs> going to give them the pornography. And that's the thing the internet can do. Um, which, you know, I think taken to its logical extreme, which they really did, meant publishing sex tapes in particular that, that you know, non-consensually from celebrities, from regular people, which was the thing that ultimately got them put out of business. And one of the things at this time and place also was lots of money, lots of VC money that was being thrown at, at companies like yours, companies like Gawker, and, and there really wasn't necessarily a clear business model to go along with it. Yeah. I, well, you know, there was a bet that a particular idea, which was that cable had been, you know, in the 1980s, companies had laid cables in the ground and, and you know, and the cable operators decided that the way that they would get people to use their service was to create an economic environment where companies like MTV, CNN, ESPN could build huge businesses and could and the cable provider would make money, these content companies would make money, and the consumer would have really high quality, if that's what you would call it, you know, stuff to watch um, that they couldn't get on broadcast TV. And the bet that these venture capitalists were making was essentially that places like Facebook and Twitter would follow that path, that they would feel the need to have professional journalism, high quality entertainment running through their pipes, and that they would and that they would, you know, find they would these companies that had gotten very good at making that kind of stuff that lived on their platforms would eventually become business partners for them because they would want to they would sort of need to have a healthy ecosystem where everybody was making money and that there would be enough to go around for these companies. The reality was that they were they they preferred to rely on user generated content um, and and not to which came to them for free and never saw any point in in a big way in, in, in becoming platforms for professional content. They didn't want to compete with the New York Times on journalism. They didn't want to compete with, say, Netflix on professional entertainment. I actually think if you think about it now, when you see the blue Facebook app sort of losing cultural relevance and Twitter kind of spinning out, you know, whether that was a good choice or a mistake by them is kind of an interesting question. But it certainly meant that this path that these investors imagined would make everybody rich in new media just totally dead ended. I think the reason you've seen in recent weeks, you know, a bunch of companies cut or go out of business is is, is really fundamentally because this whole system didn't work out the way they'd hoped. When was it clear or at least hints of the fact that it might not work out from a business perspective? I think by 20, um, you know, 2016, 2017, at least for me, was when, because I th and I think it was bound up in politics because I think the sort of, you know, the extent to which politics had become this toxic, divisive thing and social media company executives were being called in front of Congress to explain their role in it made the companies very, very shy of news. Like if they had any interest in getting into the media business or the news business before that, 
I think it ta- that taught them that this was incredibly dangerous and distracting for them and they wanted to stay away. Talk a little bit about how this was all measured because one of the, the ongoing debates was always whether page views were more important or just clicks were more important. And, and there was all this talk at the time about eyeballs and as you title your book about traffic. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, I think that one of the, the one of the core sort of business mistakes really was this idea that we, you know, in the early aughts, and it was it felt reasonable at the time, you were getting traffic, which was this measure, this very new, precise measure of audience attention, and you could sell it. You could sell, um, you know, you could get nine dollars for a thousand eyeball, it's two thousand eyeballs, a thousand views on your website, and um. And and it was not it didn't seem crazy in that moment to think, huh, that we have this very rudimentary way of displaying advertising and we have a little bit of traffic. And the way this is going to evolve is we're going to get better at producing the advertising and we'll get more traffic and this will be a huge business. And in some sense, we've discovered a new commodity like oil or something like we're just going to be more of it. We're going to make more money. But the thing is, commodities, the defining feature of commodities is that they're scarce and traffic turned out to be effectively infinite. And so instead of the price going up, the price went down. And that was a huge, a huge challenge for these new media businesses that depended on advertising. And because there was so much money being thrown at all of this at the time, was there attention at all being paid on, on any end, the business side or the editorial side, to really what the economic consequences might be? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we were... You know, we were totally, I mean, we, we weren't it, total idiots. I mean, we were perhaps idiots, but we certainly, and I think people at all these companies, and if you read their fundraising decks from the time, right. they would say we have this dangerous dependence on Facebook. Um, it's just that it was, and, and on, and this, you know, and, and, and on traffic at a certain scale, but, you know, it was also addictive and it was, it, it, the scale was so enormous that it was hard to tell people to ignore it or to play away from it and go try to build a business somewhere else when there was this booming new source of, of readers. Talk about how all of this that that you write about in traffic and that we've been talking about has kind of led us to where we are today, the way all of this has gone away. And, and what we see is, is the detritus of all of this leads to the framework of, of the news business today. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what's so there's, you know, the pendulum in media always kind of swings. But I think where we are now is that consumer, I mean, ultimately, readers, I think, wound up feeling that this social media space, which 20 years ago felt so wide open and interesting and such a valuable alternative to a mainstream media that wasn't really on the Internet, that wasn't communicating the way people really communicated. And that, by the way, had gotten the biggest story of its generation, the Iraq war, totally wrong. Um, and there was this, everyone, people, there was a real, I mean, I remember it, excitement at this possibility that you would have these, uh, be able to find different voices and different perspectives. Now, I think if you are, you know, a person on the internet trying just to figure out what is going on, you're facing the kind of chaos of these declining social media sites that really don't do a particularly good job anymore of just telling you the basic question of like what's happening today. Um, and so I think it's very reasonable that people are going both returning to trusted brands and looking for, and I think this is the change, individual voices who can help them navigate this very kind of confusing, complicated moment. 
Talk about that, the individual voices and the sense of trust, not in institutions, but in individuals. And and was there a way that that, that has grown out of this whole period that we've been talking about and that it's part of the, the institutional distrust of, of those kind of brands and really move towards individuals? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think that's a huge trend. And it's, again, you know, it's not a particularly trend connected to the news business. I mean, if you look over the last hundred years, starting in Hollywood, you know, the power shifted from the studio model to the star. And I think you see that in sports. You certainly see it in politics, where political figures are more important than their political parties. Um, and, you know, and I do think that's now what you're seeing in news and other kinds of media. And, and you know, you can call it kind of in, people's influence as influencers or personal brands and journalists hate it when you talk like that. But but I do think that one of the things that certainly you're seeing now is, yeah, is, is audiences who distrust institutions looking to understand who really they're talking to. And certainly the company I just started, Semaphore, is really trying to build around that idea that, that we're going to be really transparent with you about who's doing the reporting, what they really think. And how much of this is an outgrowth of, and you talked about it vis-a-vis -vis Hollywood, of celebrity culture really transformed to the news business? Um, I mean, I you know, I think celebrity culture sounds very derogatory, but I think it's just obvious. It's just this long-term trend, kind of whether you like it or not. Barack Obama was more important than the Democratic Party. LeBron is in some sense bigger than the Lakers. Right. Um, and it, it's, I think, part of how people organize their lives now is that they don't have a lot of trust in a faceless institution and want to know who they're talking to. There's also this sense of, of pull right now instead of push. The news, instead of being pushed out to us, that, that we get to select, the audience gets to select who they want to read, when they want to read it. Talk about that. Let's see. I mean, I guess I think that the social media age really meant that it was, you know, it was this sort of endless flow of, of content that, were, that, that was optimized for telling you what you wanted to hear. Most of all, and I, I'm not sure if it's exactly what I call a poll, but I think at its worst, it was really about, you know, rather than informing you about um, about giving you stuff that would keep you stuck to Facebook or to Twitter that would engage you sometimes by enraging you. Um, and I think we're, but I do think we're shifting to a place where readers are being more selective about who they're hearing from and, and less interested in just sort of taking the sort of full blast of uh, the hose of, of social media. And it's more about what comes into your inbox as opposed to going necessarily to somebody's homepage and picking and choosing there. You know, I think, I mean, I, I actually think that's also, I mean, home, there was a thesis that homepages and websites were like going away and being replaced by social media. I actually think they're back. I mean, I think people are looking, are increasingly looking to tr sources that they trust and are familiar with. How is this impacting the legacy brands today and and trust in institutions? I think you know the, it's you know in the sort of short run, I think the decline of social media has obviously been good for these legacy brands. People have particularly the New York, particularly the New York Times, people have sort of come back to it, and subscriptions, you know, their subscription business is doing great. I think in the medium term, the challenge for all these institutions, the journalistic institutions in particular, is that they're kind of built in the industrial age to treat journalists as cogs in their big machine. But we're in a moment when stars have a lot of leverage, have a lot of power, can command big salaries. And 
they have to sort of find a way to square those two different cultures. One of the things you talk about is that conservative media, or at least some of the people in conservative media, did learn a lot of lessons from this period in in the early 2000s that you talk about in traffic. Yeah, I mean, I think that in particular, it's it's not just they learned lessons. This this new social media, which, as you said, is like a you know, in some ways, just inherently a, a assault on institutions of all sorts. Um, was really well suited to this new right wing populism in particular that was anti institutional, that was, you know, part of his style was sort of transgressive, pub, confrontational public statements um, that would drive exactly the kind of engagement that these social platforms were built to amplify. Um, you know, who that often were not particularly concerned with truth. And in, you know, Donald Trump's case, you know, it was sort of, say things that weren't true as a provocation to get attention. Um, and, you know, and in fact, when I, in 2016, I talked about this in the book, I went to see Steve Bannon, the chairman of Trump's campaign in, in Trump Tower. He had just finished running Breitbart. And he had been, he had made a real study of digital media in general. And he had this one real like puzzlement about BuzzFeed where I was then working, which was why hadn't we gone all in for Bernie Sanders the way they had for Donald Trump. And, we, you know, I was sort of like, well, we were trying, you know, we're journalists. We want to be fair. We want to cover all the campaigns equally. And he just couldn't follow that. You know, they had supported Trump in part because that's where the traffic was. That's where the political energy was. And they followed it. They didn't, you know, it was a totally different way of looking at, at the world. There's also a sense that the distrust of institutions that we talk about was was another thing that fed into populism in many respects. Yeah, I mean, I think it was it, totally part. I mean, I think it's in some maybe that's the definition of populism, but it was certainly bound up with the, these sort of big new revolts of the 2010s against the established politics, left and right. And what do you see of the trends now? What do you see as as what's next? I mean, that you think about vis-a-vis semaphore and the, and the things that you're doing. I mean, I think that what's next right in this moment is to try to help consumers who feel overwhelmed by the amount of stuff out there and unsure what to trust, navigate that space and and to, you know, to do that, you know, in the voices of really good journalists who know what they're talking about and who are, who in our sort of style of journalism, very explicitly separate the facts from our own analysis or opinion and go out of our way to bring in other opinions, views from elsewhere. It really is kind of aggregation, but with a voice. It, it seems to be combining some previous trends. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we're not, you know, we're not, this is not, as they say, rocket science. There's only so many different, (laughs) so many different things you can do in journalism. But I I do agree, this is sort of a return to, in some ways, you know, the values of print. I don't think people are going back to print, but I think the notion that you're getting something that is, that has, um, that has a sort of a level of hierarchy and concision and an editorial perspective, but is also going and, you know, is, is a true sort of a traditional older news value. I mean, the oldest news media, like the Associated Press in the old days was largely reading other people's stuff and aggregating it. And I do think that another service that journalism can really provide right now is just to go out into this kind of totally chaotic, splintered information space and find find the stuff you want to see so that you don't have to be spending your days doing that. And at the same time, though, giving it context and putting it in, in some kind of context and giving it some kind of voice to pull it all together. Yes, that's exactly right. In a perspective where you may not exactly agree with every single thing this person thinks, but at least you have a sense of who they are and where they're coming from. Ben Smith. His book is Traffic, 
genius, rivalry, and delusion in the billion-dollar race to go viral? Ben, I thank you so very much for spending time with us today here on the Who, What, Why podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. And thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.